Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode contains language and content of an explicit nature. Listener discretion is advised. Before a song is released, a record is produced, or a chorus is written, the musicians that write them think a lot. They live a lot, and they feel a lot. Before the chorus dives into the stories and experiences that shape these artists, and ultimately, the music we hear. I'm your host, Sophia Lopercaro, and this episode's guest is Mickey Blanco. Mickey Blanco is an artist with a decade-long career. For Stay Close to Music, they pulled several pages from their own diary. The record delves into Mickey's innermost worries and desires, asking questions about oneself and their relationships with others. Simultaneously, the record is celebratory. Mickey proudly flexes their position as a musical pioneer and honors the icons who inspired them. Well, we're going to go track by track because I think even though the songs all like paint a lovely picture together, they each hold their own so much and they each really deal with their own thing. So I feel like going in order is a good way to do it. So, so we're going to start with Pink Diamond Bezel. Um, I wrote the word, what'd you say? I said a, f- a fun one, one of, the, one of the lighter ones. Definitely. A great way to start the record. Um, it's just, I, I like that we're starting the record with a song that really is just, it's light. Like it's not, you know, not every song has to be holding on to something weighty. It can just be joy for the sake of joy. It's, it's about, you know, attraction, sex, just straight up vibing. Like, and all of that <laughs> is, is welcome essentially yes so pink diamond bezel um okay so from coming from my early trajectory when a lot of my early music were party songs were dance songs um i did not start making music till i was 25 years old and uh at that time in new york city there was like this resurgence of like american rave culture um, and a lot of people that were coming up at the time, I mean, uh, I mean, I literally came up in this, this scene, this party that was happening in New York City called Ghetto Gothic, which was this, you know, genre splicing, I mean, really genre splicing kind of like, uh, like environment where people were, were doing DJ sets and playing gospel music and, 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 and there was just so many influences going on. And so um, a lot of my early music was was really inspired by rave culture, and I and I I intentionally used to work with electronic producers a lot. Um, you know, I, I never I I never thought it was cool to work with someone that was like I'm a hip hop producer. That just wasn't that just that just never interested interested me. Um, and I had come from this very arty background, performance art, theater, um, interdisciplinary art, installation art, conceptual art. So. It took me a long time to even consider myself a mu- consider myself a musician, or to even think musically. You know, um, if you think about a skill set and you think about how long it takes someone to really get good at a skill set, 
and really maybe, I don't want to say master, but really get good at it. You know, it takes about maybe, you know, 10 years, you know, and to think, okay, I'm 36 now, last year I was 35. So to have started this career at 25 and to now be 35, um, it, it, it to me would only make sense that my music or my skill set in songwriting and production and, and what I've learned has kind of come this, this this far. So a track like Pink Diamond Bezel, it's funny for me because it's it's almost like this full circle moment because I had when I started working on Broken Hearts and Beauty Suit last year and Stay Close to Music, I had made this very pointed departure to really not make club tracks. I mean, really not make, you know, and it wasn't like I wanted to make music that was so serious, but the idea of like making a party club track was just like, I was like, I have done this into the ground. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Pink Diamond, you know, so the inspiration from that song started out with the Beatles song, Michelle. Michelle, my belle, song des monkey, bon très bien ensemble. It, it started out with being inspired by the production of the Beatles. And then, you know, I came of age during the Y2K years. And um, that production, uh, uh, Ja Rule, Murder, uh, not, is it Murder, Inc.? Murder, Inc., yeah, uh, Irv Gotti, um, uh, Daniel Bedingfield, Kylie Minogue, uh, just that Y2K, Y2K sound, I feel like it always... And at a certain point when I'm in studio mode, I feel like it always is like a ghost that sits in the corner and will interject itself here and there. On Broken Hearts last year, that song Summer Flame was a very kind of like Y2K nod. And with Pink Diamond, I think there's, like I had said this in my description of the song, it feels like like to me, like, like it could be the love child of, you know, of the Neptunes and Jack White all at once. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's a feel-good song, but uh, a lot of Broken Hearts and Beauty Sleep and Stay Close to Music, uh, there's a musical word. It's called a, a transition. Mm -hmm. um, I played a lot with transitions because I was very inspired by musicians like David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joni Mitchell. And maybe it's not so obvious when you listen to the record, but these these transitions, these movements, movements, sorry, it's not transitions, movements. These movements in the music um, have always been so interesting to me, how a song can start out with one thing. And then, and you know, it's funny, Travis Scott did a lot of this on Astroworld. Um, and, and I think that really put it back into the mainstream lexicon. But, but when I was writing this music, Astro World didn't exist. <laughs> so I was very much so inspired by like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely clear to me that you do pull so much inspiration from a lot of different places. I like what you were talking about earlier, like in coming up in the rave scene that you did, how there was a lot of like genre mixing and genre clashing. Um, I think also just as a music listener it's been nice to see the kind of walls between genres being broken down and more people being open to being inspired by a lot of things in both very direct and literal senses and in these more kind of not theoretical but you know more in the kind of concepts or the way that music is structured and that's definitely something that I feel throughout the record like it's 
even though the, each song is very diverse and has like a lot of different textures, I think there's such a like richness across it that that makes everything tie together while still being really unique. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, I think we're actually gonna hop on to number two now, which is steps. This is where we're getting a little more, a little more serious, a little more introspective. Oh, yes. We're going in. Uh, let's so do this. More. So, um, should I, Frank? Should I go? Should I go? <laughs> if, if you like, if you have something you'd like to begin to share, you may. Um. So. Okay. One of when I first when I when I when I when I when I began my career, one of my biggest kind of uh, idols in a songwriting sense was Ghostface Killer. Uh, I was a huge Ghostface Killer fan as a teenager, and Ghostface is such a narrative songwriter. So, and that's someone, and Joni Mitchell's also a very narrative songwriter. Um, but for a large part of my career, I have not been comfortable writing about myself, which I think is kind of natural. I also think, I also tend to think that when you grow up with an extroverted personality, um, you're kind of taught, I mean, I, I think, I think when you're, I think when you're an outgoing extroverted kid, you learn really early on that you're a target for people assuming that you're narcissistic or assuming that, you know, that you're a smarty pants. And, and I think that sometimes us extroverted kids sometimes have to shrink ourselves, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, also an artist said this, and I, I forget which artist, but I really took it to heart years ago. They said something, it was a quote, you know, artists shouldn't think too much about themselves. And, and I kind of, and maybe that is, doesn't really fall in line with self-care, <laughs> but uh, there's, certain, there's definitely a certain strain to my personality that I think fits in more with our, you know, our grandparents. I think there's a certain level of discretion that our grandparents had that I'm very comfortable with. Sometimes I think people put too much out in the world, but now, nowadays, um, but back to steps, my point, was is that it has taken time for me to feel comfortable writing about myself and now that i think about it really years really years you know each year a little bit more so writing a song like steps that's like you know that's like, like, like that's like a page right out of my diary you know um sometimes i'm selfish and i know it prophesied my life a priestess and a poet had the power in my heart but didn't show it daddy's approval removal i was manic but i'm growing um, thinking about my sister, thinking about, you know, her kids, thinking about the life we want, the life we live. I mean, just in those sentences, you know, I talk about my abandoned issues with my father, um, about how he was very present in my childhood. Then uh, in my teen years, uh, he became very estranged. Um, and we're close again now, but that was very odd for me to have such a very present father. And then he went through some things in his personal life where we became very estranged in my teen years. Um, uh, my mother, uh, my sister had gone through a very manic depressive period that lasted for a few years. My mother had to adopt her children and ended up raising them for 11 years. Um, and that situation has healed itself. But that was a huge deal in our family for a very long time. You know, and so, um, oh, and so thinking about, um, uh, uh, you know, another, another lyric steps, you know, I should have never dated white men, fetishized when tokenism, light skin. Uh, that speaks so much to my personal life where uh, growing up how I did in the South, uh, you know, and I grew up, you know, and, and I went to this very small town school where, you know, if you were well-spoken or if you were a black kid that was well-spoken or articulate, they would say, oh, why are you trying to be white? Why are you trying to talk white? And so 
that kind of created this complex in me where um, I I felt like for I felt like I felt like until I went to I felt like until high school and then when I was really in college did I really meet other people of color that I truly connected with on on every level where it wasn't just you're like the weird black kid alternative black kid in the middle school or the elementary school it wasn't until high school or you know theater arts camp or you know where where I found other people of color that were very that were just like me and so I think that and I and, and, and there's a lot of commonality here when I talk to when I talk to other black people in particular that have this kind of same similar story as me that you know we were more socialized around white friends which was you know to a certain extent detrimental in a way not that not that these relationships or that or or or, or that this upbringing was detrimental because it cultivated us into being the people that we are but that how how what a different experience it would have been if we had been nurtured or socialized with our own people in a creative environment where we didn't feel like we had to be othered you know mm -hmm. um and so yeah steps talks about all of that <laughs> in a very condensed <laughs> in a very condensed three minute song <laughs> um so yeah and and the fact that i was able to get diverse artists like Saul Williams, who's like, you know, Saul, I mean, Mickey Blanco in a lot of ways, when we talk about a lineage of spoken word and poetry and an alternative black artist uh, playing with punk and noise. And I mean, come on, Saul Williams is, is very much so in that lineage, you know, uh, of someone who was doing this way before me, who I looked to, who a lot of people have looked to. Um, and so to be able to get Saul on a track, and, and, that's, and that was the other thing. Saul, uh, I don't know, uh, Saul, Saul, uh, you know, lives in this part of, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say exactly where he lives, but he lives, <laughs> in, this, he lives in this part of uh, LA that's really historical, that has a lot of music history. And, you know, going to his place, which is this beautiful, like, artist cabin, house thing, you know, surrounded by trees and garden and, you know, his, his, his wife is 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 a French, you know, black French woman, and she's making this amazing food, and we're talking about music, and you know, and we're having all of this before we actually make the song, and you know, it was amazing. And then you know, MNEK is one of the biggest pop songwriters in the world, so you have Saul Williams, you know, you have you have you have MNEK, you have Saul Williams, and then you know, you have Mickey Blanco, which you know. I, you know, I, I have never entered the pop echelon in the way that Emily K is and does, but there are elements to my career that have a pop sensibility. So one of the things that I realized with Stay Close to Music, which I will give myself a pat on the back because I don't do that very often, is that I realized I'm good at bringing unlikely people together on a song. <laughs> and Steps is, is, if we're going track by track, Steps is the beginning of that journey. I love that. It's it's just a, a great big mashup of a lot of life things, a lot of interesting people, just a, a great big coming together. Also, with kind of the more thematic side of the song, to me, it kind of felt like, you know, when when we begin like a journey of healing, the first step is to really take stock of where you're at, whatever things you've been through, whatever coping mechanisms you've accumulated over the years, whatever, again people in your life and the way that certain things have affected you and this song really to me felt like 
step one, if you will, and that kind of moment of taking stock as well as you're kind of becoming introspective and thinking about like, I guess, what's what's next for you? Very much so. Um, given that, there's one last thing I wanted to discuss on this song before we hop on to the next, which was just the ending line. I think it's just maybe me projecting, but it was something that really resonated with me, which was the end bit when it says the brain was never fully used, choosing habits over choices when it's pick and choose, choosing comfort over transformation, ate the mood, like the caterpillar thought its sin was the cocoon, bright monarch of the matriarchal silver moon, caught in unaware like the careless swoon, thought I was prepared until I met you, thought I was prepared until I met you. And the way I read this, and I always kind of say, this is what I thought, and I want to know what it's actually about, was... No matter how much, you know, you prepare for a situation, you know, you educate yourself about, for example, red flags from another person or you, you know, you kind of do the do the work without being in a situation. You can never really know how you're going to react to a certain type of situation until until you're in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I feel like as a human beings, we always forget that. <laughs> Massively. I've done it so many times because I'm someone who likes to be in control of things. So I try and like prepare myself for every scenario. And, you know, like I read the articles, I do all the self-help stuff. I observe the way that other people's lives go. And then when it happens to me, I'm like, I'm going to be ready for it. And then you're not like, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> so, you know, I, I will give you my interpretation of that because Saul wrote those lyrics really so, wow yeah and and i and i felt like that was saul's very honest uh i felt like that was a page probably from his diary entry and i also that that caught in unawares like that, like just that 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 yeah caught in, in the way that it's phrased caught in unawares you know uh when you catch yourself when you when you catch yourself consciously and you reflect that oh my god these, 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 I was running here and there and doing this and that, and I wasn't living very consciously. These decisions were made out of a need, but I was, I was not living consciously. Uh, 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 and then, you know, uh, I was prepared until I met you. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't prepared until I met you. Yeah, it's, it's that feeling where I say this often. I'm like very good at this. I'll be like, you know, you should be uncomfortable. Discomfort is what, you know, it's what, is what makes you grow and like you know i really say you know i really stand by this and i i say it a lot you and then you let my ass get discomfortable you, you let my ass get uncomfortable <laughs> uh, you let me get really uncomfortable all of a sudden on my little self-talk and all my little self-care and all my little spiritual mumbo jumbo goes right out the window and and you know and and i and, and then only when i'm at a certain point in the discomfort uh, there's, there's a, there's a, I'm a big, I'm a huge Oprah fan. I'm a huge Oprah fan. And, uh, I listen to a lot of her super soul Sunday podcast. And, uh, there's, a there's a speaker that she talks to that my mom actually grew up with in California. His name is Reverend Michael Beckwith. And they have this talk and I listen to it over and over again a lot. And he says something in this talk with Oprah where he says, when you're going through a really tough time, when you're going through what they would consider the dark night of the soul, he says, he says, when you're going through it, ask yourself, if this experience were to last forever, what qualities would I have to cultivate to get through it, to endure it? 
And I think about that a lot because I've listened to this podcast so many times, this episode. And obviously, you know, I have that initial fight or flight reaction. And then after that, um, I will have that moment, which is, okay, if this experience were to last forever, uh, I had a situation that happened where last year I went on tour with a musician who was a part of my band, um, who was extremely talented, was so talented, but who kind of ended up having an attitude that really stunk. And I was in this tough position because they gave so much, they added so much to the show. They were so, they were so good. But I was like, they create an uncomfortable atmosphere for everyone else. And how tolerant, how, what, what, what am I, what am I really, what, what, what am I, what? And, and it got to a point where I was like, I'm now, like I'm now one or two episodes away from like really getting angry and really showing the side to myself that I don't want to show my band. <laughs> and so, you know, I had one of those moments. Well, if this experience were to last, if I would have to deal with this person forever, what qualities would I have to develop? And then I thought, you have to learn how to be diplomatic. You have to learn how to be, uh, you have to learn how to have diplomacy, which, you know, a lot of people that have to work in offices that deal with interpersonal communications learn this early, okay? So if you get out of college, you start working in the office. People that work in offices learn this all the time. Musicians, artists, we don't work in offices. We don't, we don't, we don't have the same structure. I don't have to deal with an employee every day that gets on my nerves and then I eventually have to go to HR. People, people that, that work in these kind of environments, they, they get seasoned at this stuff. Like my mom is, like my mom is so, I mean, my mom has always had administrative jobs. She's so seasoned at being diplomatic at work. Sometimes I'm like, how do you do it? But she's done it for 30 years, you know? And so I, and so in that moment, I don't want to dwell too much, too, too, longer, too much longer on this, but, you know, but in that moment, yeah, it's that, you know, if, if, if this experience were to last forever, what quality would I have to develop to deal with it? And, and, and I use that a lot when I, once I get past that fight or flight response and I start to really think, oh, I'm uncomfortable. How am I going to deal with this? That's what I go to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's a good way to cap it. And it does lead off really well from from that last line of the song. So we're going to go into number three now. French Lessons. Mm. Another lighter, lovelier, joyful song that I think just embraces in the best ways, like the cheesier sides of love and just like the fact that it feels good. Like that bit where you do that and the guitar goes do, 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 do. Like it's just again, it's just kind of leaning into the the sappy feeling and the kind of just I guess that side of love also I I wondered because of all that why is the song called French Lessons so French Lessons is a so French Lessons was an okay I'll try to condense it but French Lessons was a journey French Lessons came to me very almost fully formed because the executive producer, Faulty DL, had made this wonderful album called Cruise in the USA that was predominantly instrumental that he did not release for whatever reason. I, I need to ask him why he didn't release it, but he didn't, and it was to my benefit. Because I, at that time, was so inspired by shoegaze music. I was so inspired by Cockatoo Twins and my Bloody Valentine. And I was so inspired um, by artists like Conan Moccasin and 
And I, and, and I also, the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, and I just, there was just this very airy, dreamy space that I, I wanted to abide in, but I didn't know, I did not know how to, I did not know how my skill set as a rap artist was gonna cross over into that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, rapping takes a lot of words. <laughs> and I've written a lot of rap songs. I've written rap songs for myself, for other people. And, you know, I got tired of having to always use so many words. And I'm like, why can't I be like these people that like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a singing voice, but why can't I be like these people that like sing and can just say a few words and it's simple and it's still meaningful and it's good. And so I said, you know what? Okay, you're not a singer, but, 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 okay, but okay, you're not a singer, but your voice isn't horrible. You can, you know, you can talk, sing. And so I thought about, I started to do, you know, I started to, I started to go through my Rolodex and I thought, uh, in my mind, and I thought, who do you like who are talk singers? Lou Reed, Tom Petty, uh, Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers. And I started to listen to a lot of Lou Reed and I started listening to a lot of Tom Petty and I started listening to a lot of the Modern Lovers. And I thought, I can do this. <laughs> I can sound, I can, I, and, 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 and it was particularly Tom, it was actually, even though French Lessons has more of a Lou Reed vibe, it has particularly been Tom Petty that has inspired me. Um, I mean, here comes, wait, where is it? Here comes my girl and here comes that girl. Here comes my girl. I mean, Tom Petty can really sing, has a nice singing voice. Do you mean, are here, you going to be my girl? Are you going to be, uh, it's the song where he's like, doom, 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 doom. I think it's Here Comes My Girl. Yeah. I don't think like, that are you going to be my girl is Tom Petty actually, but but if you Tom Petty has a nice singing voice, but if you listen to a lot of Tom Petty's songs, he talks sings most of it. He doesn't really sing. I mean, he and he can sing and he does sing some of them, but he talks sings a lot. Almost Tom Petty almost is a rapper to be quite honest, and and I took huge inspiration from this. And so okay, so French Lessons was created, and we're gonna. I don't want to jump around. But, okay, like, I don't want to jump around, but I have to talk about this song. We're talking about French lessons. So when I wrote Your Love is a Gift, I wanted to sing that song so bad. I wanted that song to be totally mine. I was in love with that song. I didn't want to give that song to anybody. But after, like, four or five tries, I was, like, listening to myself back, I was like, I can't sing this song. Unfortunately, I can't perform this song how I want I'm going to have to have someone else on it. So back to French lessons. I sat with French lessons for months because I couldn't get it right. And I couldn't get it right. I couldn't get it right. But I was like, I'm not giving this song to anyone else. This is going to be my song. It's, you know, it's going to be my song. And one day, the formula, the alchemy just hit. And, and I just got into the studio and I tried it again. New lyrics, totally new vibe. And it worked. I told the girls about my man, uh, and you know what I mean. And like, it's like, it's like I had, I, I had indoctrinated myself enough into the church of Tom Petty, and I was just like, I got this, <laughs> and and that's how that song, you know, and I, and yeah, and and, and, and it's it the song is like such, a, it's like it's also so inspired by doo wop, you know, having a noni and and you know, like you know, 
It's like, you know, I told the girls about my man. I can't believe his love is real. So one of, one of, the, one of the favorite lyrics that people always laugh is, he says, I'm looking like a snack. Yum. <laughs> you know, like, that's what they're saying. Yum. Um, one of the parts of the song that I've cried to is, and, and, I, and I cried when I heard Kelsey and Anoni, I might get emotional. Now that the floodgates have been opened already this, this morning, uh, I might get emotional now, but... Uh, you know the 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 lyrics. Oh 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 I oh I can't believe it. This feeling something like an angel. I'm reeling. I was so used to being no good. I was so used to feeling no good. That those are very heavy lyrics for me because boy that cuts right to the middle of me. Yes until I would say my first serious relationship and really the only serious relationship that I've had in adulthood was with my ex-boyfriend. We were together for four years, the one that I had moved to Portugal for and I lived with. He, I, until that relationship, my self-esteem was pretty much in the gutter. I would have moments of feeling great, but when it came to love, when it came to how, when it came, when it, when it, when it, uh, and this is, I mean, and I think, and I think for a lot of cisgendered gay men who grow up where, or who, I mean, things are so different for the kids now, but even still in certain cultures, not. Um, and even still in this culture, not. But, you know, uh, and I, I don't want to be too long-winded, but, you know, for a lot of cis gay men, uh, they're, you know, who grew, are a certain age, recently, still, uh, you don't get positive depictions in films or television. I mean, not when I was growing up. And so, you're, you know, your first time seeing queer love, seeing gay love is in a pornography. And so, because you don't, you know, grandma doesn't ask you, when are you taking the little boy to dance, you know? Or, you know, or a little boy to be your Valentine, you know? Before Will and Grace, you know, uh, you know, you always had gay characters just as like, the, you know, the comic relief slapstick. You know, you know, there weren't, there, 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 there weren't so many positive depictions. So um, people have written whole like, psychological books on this. But you know, so you have what pornography being the first time you're seeing two people in love, but it's not love, it's sex. And so then you have a whole entire generation of people that grew up thinking that love is sex. And, and so then, you know, you have a whole entire culture of promiscuity and, you know, and so it's a, it's a, it's a loop that eats itself, you know? Um, you know, we, I mean, people use hookup apps, but what, do, but what do all the therapists tell us? You know, you don't really feel that great after you use a hookup app in the long run. Not really. And, and I'm not, I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe there are people that are very sex positive that'll argue with me. And, you know, we've done the research. We don't feel that great. So, so, so it's like, you know, um, so it's like, it's like, yeah, for many years, I, yeah, I was so used to feeling no good. I was so used to being no good. And that relationship and his love was the first, his love was the first time it lifted me finally out. That loving, that true love, it lifted me out of so many dark places. And I was able to care for myself more and to realize that I had, it really helped my self-worth. And so French Lessons in a lot of ways, really, even though it's a cute song, is a lot about self-worth. Mm. I wonder then, it, and I'm kind of breaking the order a bit, but since you already touched on it, is your love was a gift. Is that kind of in the same vein of like love that is uplifting and love that helps oh, you kind of build yourself? Those lyrics, I think are, I think your love is a gift is one of the best songs I've ever written. 
um, from, a, from a songwriting standpoint. And Diana Gordon performed that song. I've also cried to that song. Diana Gordon performed that song so excellently. Oh my God. Like, but the lyrics, I'm not a secret. Don't keep me locked away. I'm worthy of love. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that way? And here it goes. I thought you saw me, but do you see me? Do you see me how I see myself? You told me to love me before I could love you or somebody else. And I wonder if you wonder about me now. And I wonder if you wonder about me now. Your love was a gift. That makes me, because that part, you know, I thought you saw me, do you see me? But do you see me how I see myself? That is so important because oftentimes people are in so many relationships where we shrink ourselves, where we think that we have to do certain things to be loved. We go through childhood traumas. We think that we have to be a certain way to be loved. And we don't realize that we're slowly chipping away. Every time we do that, every time we make an inauthentic decision in love, what I feel, in my opinion, we don't realize we're doing is we're getting further and further away from who we truly are. And it's sad because people will live in relationships and stay in relationships for years and maybe the surface of the relationship is okay. People get married in these situations and then all of a sudden, nine years or five years down the road, they're realizing that they resent their spouse and it's not your spouse's fault. <laughs> it's really your fault. It's really, and, and maybe, and yeah, maybe the spouse had a hand in it, but it's really this resentment you're feeling. It's probably not their fault. It's your fault because you did not allow yourself to be seen how you should have been seen. And that is so like, that is so important. And I like, and, 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 when, and when I feel myself sliding back into having low self-worth or, or sliding back into these behaviors. I remember stuff like that because it's like, no, like I shouldn't have to, I put my, when I, in my twenties, I put myself in so many situations that like that compromised who I was to be, to be loved. And it's so sad, but it's, it, it sadly is such a commonality. You know, you know, the more that we connect with people, we find out that people do this all the time, every day, compromise bits and pieces of themselves just to be loved, you know? Massively. And I mean, as much as, you know, I did mention the tie to like French lessons and there is the half of the song that has that more like uplifting, like loving side. There is obviously this heavier side too. And what I find particularly interesting and and I, I'm almost certain this is intentional and this is where you can tell me is the fact that family ties is immediately after it. There's also a bit of a, a sonic <laughs> connection to the two. They yeah. have certain parts of them that are tied. There's a transition from the end of one into the other. Like, they're very clearly attached to each other. Yeah. Um, family ties. I mean, that song is... a That song, I. it's so funny because you would have thought it would have been a no-brainer, but I didn't realize the universal quality of that song until it was kind of, like, kind of already out. And we were doing the music video, you know, and and uh, that song is directly about and, and, you know, and he's comfortable with me discussing it with the press. That song is directly about my ex-boyfriend and his relationship with his mentally ill father. Um, his father had been a very, a very abusive man, um, I think verbally, sometimes physically, very abusive man. And then when my ex-boyfriend was a teenager, his father got into a very bad car accident that jumbled his brain 
And all of a sudden, uh, my ex-boyfriend describes this reversal where he, the, the father had terrorized him and his mother and his brother. And then all of a sudden, like after this accident, they like got the revenge on their father. And it was this really unhealthy atmosphere. And then, you know, when I was with, you know, my, my ex-boyfriend, after he had escaped this really unhealthy family situation, you know, and, you know, when you start to really love someone, you deal with each other's trauma, you know, and, and there would be, you know, times when his father would be fine, you wouldn't hear from him, or, you know, how are you doing it? And then out of the blue, his father would call him, you know, four months would go by, everything's fine. And then out of the blue, his dad would call, call him, I'm going to kill myself, you know, and to, to be the partner I had never experienced, you know, I, I, like, uh, I think uh, my first encounter with, 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 with someone that, that that had dealt with mental illness is probably uh, a childhood friend of my sister's, but not uh, and 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 we and we were and she was a very close family friend, but besides that, I had never but I had never dealt. I mean, but this was my sister's like best childhood friend. That's not like my dad calling me and being like, Michael, I'm going to kill myself. So I had never, you know, I had never experienced the magnitude of of that of that of that dimension of dealing with with someone living with mental illness and, and, and what that can do to a person. And so, yeah, family ties is, is I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, um, yeah, you know, uh, lyrics are so simple. I heard about your father. I, and, I was, and, I, and I was happy that, I, I joke, but I'm, I'm happy that me and my executive producer, me and Faulty DL Drew, we have given, we have finally found uh, what I would say, he's given me the Britney Spears treatment. <laughs> so we have finally found a vocal chain. We have finally found a filter that enhances my voice and that I feel comfortable singing in. Um, and I was really happy that I was able to perform Family Ties. Um, because yeah, like that was another, I mean, I, I, I struggled during the process of making these records because it was a lot of growing pains for me because I was using my voice in a lot of new ways. And there was nothing, for me at least, there was nothing more frustrating than writing a song that you think is really good that you can't perform. <laughs> like, cause you're like, I wanna be the one to perform it. So I was glad that I was able to perform Family Ties. And um, the lyrics are so simple. I heard about your father. I heard he wasn't doing so well. Surprised you even bothered. You know, he's always got a story to tell. Let's not play the victim. You know, stick it to me oh so good. It's fiction like a sitcom. You've tried everything I know you could, um, but I hate to see you so low. I hate to see you all fucked up. I hate to see you so numb. You know, these family ties tend to suck. Now all you see is problems. You complain enough it just gets old to think you won't resolve them. I know you tried to let things go. I'm here to fix everything. Try to save everything. Keep it up, don't ever fold. You know, I don't want to break. But, but I don't want to fake. It's important to me that you know. So, you know, and it's talking about how, you know, at, at times, you know, the, you know, at, at times, you know, you, you want to be there for this person, but you don't know, you don't know how to, you know, and, and then, you know, and then you realize sometimes that all you really have to do is just be present. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, this song definitely takes that again well that kind of outside view which is quite literally the position you're in and yeah I, f I feel like there's nothing else that I can add because this is one of those times where you've just summed it up really well and I yeah I have nothing more to contribute because because <laughs> yay you did it you did the thing um I think 
I've now basically just broken the order because I feel like it, it's yeah, kind of working for this. <laughs> but I think the next one I'm going to jump to now is actually your feminism's not my feminism because obviously that's another great one. You know, it's nice to talk about or not nice because it's it's not a, a fun fact that there's trans exclusionary radical feminists in the world and people that, you know, their feminism isn't for everyone, even though it should be. Um, and I like that the song both, you know, begins by kind of calling those types of people out that don't welcome people that aren't necessarily like cis women, but that also there's the way the song ends. It's, it's sort of celebrating different kinds of people. And it's like, we, we are beautiful. We're valid. We bring something to the table and we're going to stand in that rather than, just spend all our time having to push against these other people. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time with this crap anymore. And, you know, that song is a direct ode to, I mean, I mean, these people have touched so many people and these people have allowed so many of us to truly see ourselves. But that song is such an ode to Bell Hooks, such an ode to Audre Lorde. Um, when I was in high school, it was the first time, and I was junior year, I read the transformation of America. Why am I getting another fucking spoke? I'm not gonna cry. But I but this essay was so important to me because I read it over and over again. One time I even read it in church. <laughs> I read Audrey, I read Audrey Lord in church, but I read the essay, uh, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. And I think for abuse survivors, I think for just anyone who's experienced any form of really intense trauma, that essay was so transformative to me. The, the transformation of silence into language and action. And, um, you know, it's so funny because so much that used to be shrouded in academia now, um, people, you know, like, like, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality, so many of these things have come out into uh, mainstream vocabularies and, you know, we, and, and, and so many people have much more of an understanding of these these concepts and these really, I guess it's, I mean, maybe it's a perspective, but I consider it these realities of society. Um, and, uh, you know, your feminism is not my feminism. It speaks to so many things. It speaks to, it speaks to queer people and trans people um, and gender non-conforming people being political tools. You know, I have that part, part of the song, you know, when, you know, I say, you know, you use me as a damn weapon when the whole world's tripping, you know, it's like, you know, you know, political demagogues, you know, they, you know, they will use gender non-conforming people, you know, to their benefit and to their detriment, you know, whichever, whichever, which, whichever the coin flips at the time, you know, um, uh, how you're, you know, how when you're gender non-conforming, you're highly visible, yet very invisible, you know, how I look makes you think you can talk to me, you know, uh, it's so funny because when in, in my, in my gender journey, when I was presenting more consistently outwardly as femme all of the time. Um, you know, sometimes people would give me compliments and people don't, people don't realize that you under, like that as a human being, you understand, you feel the, even if their words say something, you feel the intention of what it really means. And so sometimes people could give me compliments and I could know if the compliment was rooted in pity and that didn't feel good. I would have rather you just said nothing and feel like then all of a sudden you feel insecure and feel like you gotta lift me up. So you're gonna tell me you look like you look like like you like you're slaying girl. And it's like, shut up. <laughs> like it's like shut up. 
like I like I can feel the intention. Like, and I'm not trying to be a nihilist or cynical, but I can feel that I, you can feel the difference in a genuine compliment versus like something like that, where you're like, this has actually more to do with what you're going through and how you and how you and how and what you think of me and what you think where you think my place is in the order of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that song speaks to a lot of stuff. And then, you know, and then it's just simple, you know, like what if we, you know what do we come to what 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 has intersectionality taught us what have we what have we come to learn in recent years that maybe that maybe generations knew out in the open that not everybody's feminism is our feminism you know that and, and you know it was someone like kathleen hannah i was 15 years old when i learned what feminism was and it was through kathleen hannah with latigra it was through redis it was through discovering the riot girl movement of the early 90s and you know, there's a there's a famous song by La Tigra, you know, where they're naming off all of these really amazing feminists. And I was like 15 years old soaking soaking all this in. But there's a song called Hot Topic. And, you know, they go, Eleanor Anton, Eleanor Anton. And and hold on. Oh, wait. Um, hold on. Uh, hot Topic is the way that we rhyme. Carol Rama and Eleanor Anton, Yoko Ono and Carol Shreeman. You're getting old. That's what they say. But don't give a damn, I'm listening anyway. And it's this roll call of all these feminists. And like, this is what I was listening to at 15 years old. So it's like, you know, I feel like I'm someone that's really grown up with this conversation and that's, and from an early age has followed, you know, society's movements with it, you know? And yeah, I think we're at a really cool place now. I think that people definitely have more access to information and, and ways of seeing uh, but yeah, like at, at its core, you know, yeah, your feminism sometimes is not my feminism. And I, and I, and I love that we ended the song with like, I just, I just want to celebrate you, girl. <laughs> I just want to celebrate you. You know, it's like, I, um, I feel like with, I feel like with your feminism, you know, it's a serious song, but I feel like at that ending, we, you know, we're, we're bringing you back up. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's kind of a, a good place to point towards some of the last few songs. First, before we get into the really, like, just joyful, confident songs, I want to stop by Carry On because it almost feels like, whereas in some ways, not I, there's obviously a lot within your feminisms, not my feminism, mm-hmm. as we've just discussed, but one of the things that you did mention is it being an ode to some of the people and a nod to some of the people that have inspired your own views on on feminism and who it's for and who is welcome to the table and it feels like there's elements of carry on that are now that passing of the torch it's kind of turning around and being like now to the next set of of young queer black kids like you know being like i see you and let's let's now lift you up you know what i mean there's a nod to that in the song too um yeah, so there are videos of me performing Carry On as a poem. Um, they're actually, I, I first performed Carry On as a poem uh, uh, in London uh, with uh, a photographer, uh, but also multi-hyphenate, awesome guy named Nick Knight. Um, and he has a space called Show Studio. And there's actually a video of me performing Carry On as a poem. And, you know, like I said, like, like it's taken me years, really, to become comfortable writing openly about myself. Um, and talking about myself um, in songs, but you know there are things like you know when I revealed when I when I, when I revealed that I had HIV uh, in 2015, that was like a watershed moment because no one I I 
Time Magazine had never written about me in my entire life. I'm sure people at Time Magazine didn't even know who Mickey Bunko was before that moment. But Time Magazine wrote about that. Uh, and I had come to realize after I did it that it was such a big deal because no one had ever done it in the way that I did it. Yes, people had publicly revealed they had HIV, but no one had done it like I did it in that context, on social media, in that way, with my platform. You know, like just that never happened before. And that, and I did that for personal reasons. I did that because my personal life was being too much in the shadows. Uh, I wasn't being able to be open with people. Uh, the personal and the professional uh, have always been blurred for me. And, and I just, like that decision was not a careerist decision. It was like anti-careerist. I thought my career was gonna be over. So then, you know, fast forward, okay, you know, I've, you know, I came to realize that, you know, that people were more compassionate than I thought. In that moment, people were scared. They didn't know how to react. Uh, professionally, I won't say names, people disassociated themselves with me. Uh, uh, the news cycle was so vicious. For about a year, it went from gay rapper Mickey Blanco to HIV positive rapper Mickey Blanco. Vicious. But at least at that point, I was more seasoned to understand. I was happy that I did it then, at least in retrospect, because I had been in the public eye for about three or four years at that point, and I understood what a press cycle does. So I understood that after a certain amount of time, it would just feel very derogatory for writers to write that. <laughs> you know, like it would no longer be a part of the, the narrative. Anyway, but I'm also glad I have a backbone because that was a tough period. Um, and, stuff, and stuff like that makes you stronger. But, you know, with Carry On, Black and gay. I wonder. It's it's such a it's such a page. It could not be more of a page out of my diary entry. These are these are literally things that I have thought for years. Black and gay. I wonder if they'll ever claim us. You know, this is this is this is a pre this is a pre Frank Ocean pre Little Nas world, where even though both of those musicians are brilliant musicians, they're both musicians that came out in the closet. I mean, sorry that that came into the public eye in the closet. So and they they gained their all their big massive fans with people thinking they were heterosexual musicians before you know so that matters and i always bring that up because that does matter that wasn't the trajectory of me and a lot of other visibly queer artists anyway but the lyrics black and gay i wonder if they'll ever claim us hiv i have hiv can i still be famous <laughs> will they wait till i'm dead to give me credit these thoughts run through my head i try to dead them and just bless god instead you know <clears throat> one of the things one of the sad things about being what people consider a pioneer that I have actively and will actively till I am no longer kicking, will strive to achieve. And I, I think I think I'm already doing it. One of the sad things about being a pioneer is that you have people that are always gonna say, Oh, they pioneered this, but we never gave them their roses. We never gave them their flowers. Oh, they they never reached as high. You know, they they were the pioneer, but there's a stigma to being a pioneer that you pioneered it, but you don't get to enjoy the fruits of it. And honey, you better believe I'm gonna enjoy the fruits of it. That's why it's weird. I know because I know because of the way the world was, because of the politics of the world, because of a cultural conversation. I know that I know that people like to archive me. People talk about me like I'm an artist that's been around for 25 or 30 years. Seriously, I've been put in textbooks. People archive me and I have had to strive really hard to be like, guys, like 
I am here, if you haven't noticed, making very relevant music that's very now. And I feel like I have jumped that hurdle, but people archive me in this way that like, you would think that seriously, I had been around for 30 years and that's because of that whole pioneer thing. But let me tell you, being a pioneer isn't all it's cracked up to be if you don't get to enjoy the fruits of what, of, of what you help create. <laughs> Well, if in my own small way I can give you your roses, it is a fucking brilliant <laughs> record. I think it's a, a pinnacle moment for you, so so screw all that. I know I don't exactly hold much weight, but whatever little bit I can give, I will give. Um, the last thing I want to kind of touch on is actually Lucky and You Will Find It because... And the reason I want it... One, because like you said, it's good to end on a happy note. Um, and also you're you're collecting your own damn roses and i feel like these are two songs that epitomize that so i feel like we should end with the flex tracks essentially um yeah lucky is a lucky is a fun song and lucky actually uh first premiered i did a video i did a collaboration with gucci where lucky actually we did an instrumental version of lucky and you can actually watch that video if you just type in mickey blanco gucci because you'll, you'll find it but Lucky's a fun song. Um, you know, I, I I think my favorite lyrics in Lucky are, hold on, uh, I am so lucky how much that dog in the window, blueberry, butt wrap that endo, I feel tranquilo, so zendo. <laughs> like, I, I love those lyrics, and I love the end, you know, throw me in the wishing well. <laughs> Do all my head is, yeah, I wish you well. Throw me in the wishing well, and then you will find it. You will find it. I think it, I, I mean, who would have ever thought me and Divinja Banhart would be in a song together? But I feel like we, I feel like that song strikes such a playful balance. I love that song. I lit that sage, I lit that sage, I lit that palo santo. Lady Gaga on my radio, it's Alejandro. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it combines, I feel like it combines so much of this old school Mickey Blanco playfulness and braggadocio but also so much with, you know, uh, with the direction and the vibe of, of, of what I was trying to do. Uh, and you know what's funny? I think, I think actually lyrically, you will, you will find it as one of the more earlier songs, but I feel like it bridges this nice gap. You know, um, you know, I'm not saying that your love is not enough for me, but you know, it, it, it's so nice, you know, Alice Coltrane and some ganja. Yeah, that's all I need. I think that it, I mean, I, I, I like that I reference other artists in that song because um, it's like, yeah, it's a Mickey Blanco song with Davinja Banhart, and we're gonna like the stage, and we're gonna like Paolo Santo, but like, Gaga's also on the radio. And like, and like, and like, and like, yeah, like, we're gonna like, yeah, we might have started the day listening to Gaga, but then we're gonna cool down and listen to Alice Coltrane, you know, and smoke a joint, you know, it just, it's a playful song, and the instrumentation, I mean, Devendra adding, I mean, Devendra added the chime. I mean, so Drew had produced this beautifully, like ether ethereal track. But then Devendra added these, like, these just amazing soft guitars and flute. And no, and Drew added more flute and the chimes, you know, and it's just like you and I, it, it, so if you notice, ketamine and you will find it have the same intro. And that's on purpose. Hmm. You will find it was created first. But um, one of the other, like I said, like there was a lot of inspiration from Joni Mitchell, a lot of inspiration from David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. 
And one of the things that I realized that people used to do in the 60s, that I think is so cool that people don't do anymore, is like they would repeat stuff on the same record. Yeah. <laughs> they, would, they would reference, they would literally reference themselves on the same record. Yeah. And I thought people don't do that so much anymore. And they like, do it in musical theater a lot. It's called a callback. Um, but it's well, you're teaching you something. Yeah, no, it's very common in musical theater um, and also in film scoring because they use it a lot for like character building. For example, yeah, for example, I think um, I forget who did the music for the Grand Budapest Hotel, but there's a little melody for one of the characters. It kind of goes like and it's often throughout the score, it's woven back in throughout different parts of the score like when that character is involved same thing again in musical theater um there's a there's a song that i used to like i said not being a singer but being a theater kid there was you know i always would do you know bill coleman from cabaret that was my audition song i guess to to wrap up the conversation what we're really taking from this is that this is actually a musical theater record no i'm kidding but well if it's, you, I mean, we're, we're not not to not to jump records but uh, if you've ever listened to that, that song on Broken Hearts and Beauty, say Patriarchy Ain't the End of Me, the, that song is literally inspired by musical theater. I tried to make, I literally, I literally, like, I was like, this is a musical theater song. This is a theater song. Stay Close to Music is available now wherever you normally get your music. This podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Sophia Lopercaro, and the artwork is by Meg Wilford. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.